almost let it slip then that I was Welsh. And one of my best friends said to me, he says, you'll be fine. He says, just don't tell them you're Welsh, he says. A bit rich coming from an Irishman, I thought, but there we go. Well, it's been a real treat this morning because uh, more often than not, when I go and I preach in churches, I, I will also lead the service. So to be able to be part of the congregation and to enjoy that worship time was a real blessing. So thank you to the worship team. And I'm sure there is more to come after God's word. We are on our journey, aren't we, to, towards Easter. And as part of this, over these coming weeks, uh, we're looking at various themes. And Josh has asked me to, to look at the theme of confession and repentance this morning. It's a difficult subject, let's be honest about this, but there are just a couple of things I want us to, or three things in fact, to remember before we read Psalm 51 and before we enter into what God has to say to us this morning. And the first is this, we must remember that our God is merciful, yeah? Because when we look at this topic, when we look at sin, it's a difficult subject. It hurts to admit that we are sinful. And so we must remember at all times that God is merciful. And secondly, we must remember that sin is serious. We can't get away from that. I can't package it up in any other way other than to say that it is serious. And thirdly, and I'm not repeating myself, we must remember that God is merciful. Whatever we do this morning, however we look at this passage of scripture, we must bookend it by remembering that our God is faithful, that he is loving as we have just sung, and that he is merciful. He is ready to show us mercy if we would but repent and confess our sins to him. So with that in mind, will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51? which is a psalm of David. We're going to read all the verses, 19 verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, 
and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's just pray before we come to that passage. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, as we turn our attention to what you have to say to us this morning, Father, I pray that this would all be about you. Lord, that even as I stand here, Lord God, you would use my words. Father, they would be your words. That you would speak to each of us. Unstop our ears, Lord, and soften our hearts, ready to hear what you have to say to us, each of us. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are a God of mercy. That you long to bless us that you love us regardless, Father, but you demand of us that we confess our sin and that we repent, turn from it and run back to you because your arms are open wide. You are waiting for us, Lord. You rejoice to see us. You love to hear our prayers. And so, Father, as we approach this subject now, Lord, I pray that we would have in the forefront of our mind that great fact that you're a God that loves to show mercy. May we never forget that, Lord. Amen. It's a uh, topic, as I've said, which is uh, somewhat difficult to approach. It's not probably considered by many in, in our society something we should need to do. We certainly shouldn't need to feel guilty about things, but that of course is not what scripture tells us. And as we turn our attention to this psalm that was written by David, I think it'd be useful just to have a little bit of a backstory as to why he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this wonderful psalm, this prayer of restoration. If you turn back in your Bibles at some point to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you will get a bit of detail about why and what was happening. David, as you know, was appointed king. Samuel was told by God to go and find him and to anoint him. He was God's man. God himself described him as a man after his own heart. You can't get much better than that, can you? And yet, we know the story. Samuel, in 2 Samuel 11, we are told about how David fell from grace. He should have been somewhere else. That's what we are told. He should have been with his armies fighting the enemy. But he chose to stay back in Jerusalem and enjoy all the benefits of being king. He was a believer 
a man who loved the Lord God with all his heart. And yet we read he fell, he sinned terribly. He saw a woman, Bathsheba, he lusted after her. He committed adultery and then he compounded it by having her husband Uriah killed, murdered. How could there be any way back for this man after committing these sins? Well, his way back is very much like, and indeed is, the way that we come back from sinning, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is our Saviour. You know, we too will battle with temptations that we encounter in this world, won't we? I doubt if there is ever a day or a week that goes by when each of us are not tempted by something. We are tempted to do something which is wrong. We also battle with our own natures because we are not perfect, are we? We have our own sinful desires that we constantly battle with. And then we have the old enemy, the devil, who is always there wanting to trip us up. Always there wanting to tell us that God really isn't merciful that God really doesn't forgive. He always wants to try and cast that doubt in our minds. So we have all of these things that we, we battle with as human beings. And just like David, sometimes we may fall into sin when we are not where we should be. David should have been out there in the battlefield with his men. He should have been fighting. And yet he was languishing at home not doing what he should have been. And so often we can drift from God, can't we? When we don't walk in step with the Spirit. Sin, you see, has this, this terrible tendency of dragging us deeper and deeper and deeper into more sin and further and further and further away from God and yet unless we stay close to him. So this is David's predicament. He has sinned greatly before God. And yet, he decides to ignore it. He decides to suppress it. Until, that is, God sends Nathan the prophet to him. And in 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 to 6, we read this. This is after Nathan has told David a story, a parable, about an injustice. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Can you imagine the scene? There is Nathan, the prophet, standing before the king. The king is enraged. He's angry at what he's heard. And Nathan, poor Nathan, has now got to deliver the hammer blow. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are he. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah and if this had all been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. 
there was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. David's sin was exposed for all to see. And it is in the context of that feeling of guilt and shame and anguish that David pens Psalm 51 for us. And so as we look at this and we walk through this, I want us to see a number of things. I want us to understand his plea for mercy, the way that he confessed, the way that he asked for cleansing. And in his restoration, we need to see that he was given a fresh impetus. And that we also need to see, as he concludes the psalm, what a true sacrifice is, what God expects of us. So let's, let's look at verse, verses 1 to 2, first of all. A plea for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David had for so long, as I've said, hidden his sin. It wasn't really hidden because people could see what he'd done. He'd involved other people in his sinful work. But now he admits it. It's out there. And he throws himself on God's mercy. His unfailing love, his great compassion. You know, that is the nature of our God. We may feel there are times when there is no coming back from things we have done. We may feel that whatever we have done, we may not have committed murder, we may not have committed adultery, but don't forget that we don't have to commit those actions for us to sin. Jesus told us that our very thoughts are examined. If we lust, it's as good as the action of adultery. If we hate, it's as good as murder. And David had done these terrible, terrible things. And yet he knew in all of this, he knew the character and the nature of his God, of our God. And that is a God who is merciful, who longs to show mercy, who is waiting for us to return to him and to say, Father, I have sinned. Forgive me, cleanse me. You know, there was no way that David could fix this himself. There was no DIY approach that he could adopt. He couldn't go to God and say, well, look, God, I've done all of these really, really good things here. Does that not outweigh my bad things? Does that not get rid of the problem of my sin? But of course that doesn't. And God, who is just, must record his sin. This is what he refers to. He says, blot out my transgressions. It's like blotting out a record in a book. God had recorded, had put down on paper, if you like, a record of his sins. And David knew this, that God could not overlook his sinful nature. God had to judge him fairly. And so he shows deep remorse. He has this um, terrible sense of being dirty, of being morally unclean. And he is so anxious to have that sin, that stain removed from his heart. 
So the, he is in the depths here. I said it wasn't an easy sermon to preach. When we look at sin, we have to face the reality of what it is, that it is an offence to God. But we always have to have an eye on who God is, who his character is, and we have to understand that he will forgive if we are truly repentant and we confess those sins to him. So in verses 3 to 6, we have a true confession from David. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the very time my mother conceived me. Yet... You desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. See, David owns what he's done. And he couches it in terms which doesn't leave any doubt for us as readers. He talks about his wrongdoings as transgressions. As that's like stepping over the mark. He knew what God required of him. He knew the law. He knew that he couldn't commit murder. He knew that he couldn't commit adultery. And yet he willfully disobeyed God. And he talks about iniquity, that, that sense of guilt and, and filthiness, the stain of sin. So he brings it all out into the open and he brings it before God. He says, I have done this thing. I have done this thing. I'm sure he could remember Nathan's voice those words ringing in his ears, you are the man, David. You are he. So he, he just couldn't ignore it. His sins were many. He uses the, the plural, transgressions. But he makes this very profound statement in, in verse 4, which seem, might seem quite peculiar. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, it's obvious from the story in, in 2 Samuel that David had done more than just sin against God because he had sinned against people he had murdered, he'd committed adultery, he'd sinned against the nation because as king, he was also responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people. And that's an aspect of sin that maybe sometimes we don't understand. You know, we're called to live as a community of God's people. And when we sin, it may not be against a brother or sister, it may, it may be a personal thing, but that impacts not only our relationship with our Heavenly Father, but it also impacts our relationships one with another. And there are times when we have to put our faith into practice if we sin against a brother or sister. There are times when we have to face up and do difficult things and confess to each other and seek to build bridges and restore relationships. So David's sins are many. He's offended and sinned against people. He has caused great pain and there are consequences for his sin. If you carry on reading through 2 Samuel, you will see how his family imploded. And that's another aspect of sin that we can't ignore. Because sometimes there are consequences for our sin which last a very, very long time. 
And that should be a, a good motivation for us not to do wrong things. But in God, there is forgiveness. But his sin, first and foremost, was against God. It was, if you like, cosmic treason. He had rebelled against the one who had given him life, against the one who had loved him, against the one who had appointed him kin. He had deserted his God. He had not met that standard that he was all too aware of. And yet, he admits that God is fair and that God is just in his judgment and that he deserves punishment. You know, talking about guilt today is not a very popular thing. It's seen as a very, very negative thing. You know, you can't say you're guilty of something because it will just make you feel terrible. Well, that is very true. And when we talk about sinning against God, we should feel terrible. We should feel remorse. It, it should drive us to our knees in tears. Because when we consider, when we look at, the, at what we're going to do in a few minutes in sharing the bread and the wine, when we consider what Jesus Christ has done for us, all that he gave for us, all that he bore for us, the wrath of God rested on us fairly and squarely. But Jesus intervened. Jesus took that for us. So how can we ignore our sin? We can't. And no matter how small or big the sin, it all violates God's law. But he also talks about the fact that this wasn't a single event. This was something that was with him and with us from the moment of our birth. He actually is making a very, very deep theological statement there. And this is something that's expounded further by Paul in the New Testament. And in Romans 5.12, Paul writes these words, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And that is the reality and the truth of humankind. We don't need to learn to sin. We are born sinners. And that's an unpalatable thought. But that is the truth of it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one is perfect. It was because of Adam's failure, but because of Christ's work on Calvary, through one man we can find redemption. And that is our hope. So David knew God's expectation. He knew what he had done. And in verses 7 to 9, he gets to the point where he knows he needs to be cleansed. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He's already asked to be cleansed in verse 2. But he returns to it. Such is his desire to be right before God. And he knows that God alone is the one that can cleanse him from his sins. Some, sin, some stains, you know, are extremely difficult to remove. 
get a bit of curry down your, your nice white t-shirt or something and you know what it's like. It's so difficult. But sin cannot be removed from our hearts by any other means than by being washed by the blood of Christ. It's a strange notion to think that blood which is red can make us whiter than snow. David knew from all the sacrifices that were made in the temple the importance of the shedding of blood. He knew that it was a requirement of God. And he calls out to God to, to take the hyssop. That's a, it's like a little, a little plant that was used in, in ritual cleansing by the priests. And it was also, if you remember back to the time when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, if you remember the instructions that were given to dip the hyssop in the blood of the lamb and to paint it on their doorposts so that they would be safe when the angel of the Lord came over and killed all the firstborn. This whole idea that, that, that blood is required, it's because our sin requires death. That is the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And yet Christ took that punishment for us. He is the one that died in our place. And all of those animals that were killed over many, many centuries in the temple, those rivers of blood that flowed from the temple, they could not cleanse us from our sin. And David knew that. He looked forward to the hope that he had in Christ. He didn't know all of the detail. We know. We know that Jesus Christ came. That he lived a life. That he died a death. That he rose victorious. And that he ascended. And only through him and through his death and his resurrection can we know what it is to have true communion with the Father. What an amazing saviour we have. That although he was the person who was offended, he provided the way through Christ. In verse 8 there, David harks back to Psalm 32 when he recalls how he felt before he confessed his sin. When I kept silent, in verse 3 of Psalm 32, he says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. He suffered spiritually. The weight of his sin weighed him down. But he also suffered physically. You know, God doesn't want us to have unconfessed sin. And the Holy Spirit will do a work in us to make us feel uncomfortable. He will want to bring that sin to our attention. Not to grind us down and to keep us down, but just to remind us that we need to go to Jesus. That we need to confess. That we need to turn away from our sin, that is repent, and that we need to turn back to God, that we need to run back to God, that we need to ask for forgiveness, and I can categorically promise you that if you do that, you will find it. Our God 
is faithful. And oh, what joy there comes when we confess and repent. Listen to David's words again in Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You can just hear the sigh of relief. I'm free. I'm free from the guilt that I felt. I have been conscious of my sin. I have confessed it. I have brought it to you. And you have forgiven me. You know, our faith, as we've been learning in James, has to be very, very practical, doesn't it? You know, we can and we should, in our quiet times, go to God and confess our sins. Yes, of course we should. But as I've said already, you know, if our sins involve a brother or sister, then we've got to put practical legs on our faith. We have to go to them. And we have to make amends. We have to build bridges. Now, our salvation changes us thoroughly when we first come to Christ. But in confession and repentance, as we walk along the way together as Christians, forgiveness, that freshness of forgiveness, renews us. We should remember the day we were first saved. Do you remember that day? Do you remember how you felt when that burden was lifted? Do you remember that assurance that you had? You know, we should remember. We should remember what the Lord has done in our life. And we should do everything within our power to ensure that our sins do not interfere and interrupt that wonderful relationship we have with Father God. We can't function properly as Christians if our hands are tied because we have unconfessed sin. We can't worship together. So keep short accounts with God. You know, we have a wonderful Saviour. I just can't tell you how much he loves us and wants us to experience his presence. It's wonderful to sing his praises, isn't it? It's wonderful to lift his name and to acknowledge who he is and what he's done. And David was so, so desperate to know that cleansing. He wanted to hear and and understand and appreciate that joy and gladness that can only come from a pure, clean heart. But he asks God to do something amazing. He asks God to hide his face from his sins and blot out his iniquities. And you know, that can only be achieved because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's only because the Father turned away from the Son that we can ask God to turn his face from our sins. Yeah, David suffered much as a result of the wrong things that he did. But God gave him the grace to live through those. In his final days, 
and his final words to Solomon, his son. From 1 Kings 2, we read this. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man. And observe what the Lord, your God, requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. You know, David was saying to his son, he's saying to us, don't make the same mistakes that I made. Don't waste your time. Don't waste what God has for you. Come to him. Repent. He is so longing for you to do that. You know, in verse 10 and 13, we have this wonderful request that David makes to the Lord. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. What a wonderful prayer that is. You know, David longed to have that clean heart once again, to be free from the guilt that he was feeling. But in that forgiveness that he was going to experience, that he had experienced, God blessed him. He restored his impetus to, to, to go and do what God wanted him to do, what God wants each of us to do. In removing his guilt, in forgiving him, God opened David's mouth again so that he could sing his praises, so that he could declare God's righteousness to all. So there was something for him to do in his forgiven state. He was able to do the work of the Lord. And as king, he had much to do. He had a great example to set to his people. And as Christians, as fellow believers here in Bethel, as part of the body of Christ, we have much to do, much work to do. And we can only do that if we have the motivation and the impetus that only comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven and that our heart has been cleansed by God. It's like a recommissioning almost. Go and declare God's goodness. Give us that steadfast spirit. Sustain us through your blood, through that forgiveness. Enable us to take the gospel to others. Well, as David concludes this psalm, we read in verses 16 to 19, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar.
See, David gets it. He understands. Because what he has done, there is no offering. In committing murder and adultery, there is no way back. The law demanded his death. There was no burnt offering that he could have offered. Only the death penalty, that is what he deserved. But he came to God the Father with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God is not interested in our outward appearances, our outward actions, unless our hearts are where they should be. Then and only then will our actions count. And it is he alone that can provide that new heart. If you've never known what it is to be forgiven your sins, then don't delay. Today is the day that you need to come to him to ask for forgiveness, to receive that, that new heart, as Ezekiel tells us, to have that heart of flesh which is just, oh, just at war with God constantly, shaking our fists at God. And yet God in his mercy and his compassion will take that sinful heart from us and he will replace it with a heart of flesh that is just completely changed, that is completely reorientated. So when we look at Jesus, when we look at the Father, we are just amazed at what he has done. David was restored. This prayer is a wonderful declaration of God's goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness. It's a psalm about confession and repentance, first and foremost. We can't play fast and loose with God's grace, can we? We can't look at David and say, well, he got away with it. Because there is consequence for sin. You know, sin shackles us. It, it does us no good. There may be a momentary hit of pleasure, but as David found, it didn't last. God desires to show mercy. He desires to bless us. But we too have our part to play, don't we? We must, as we are told in Scripture, we must own our sin, not try and hide it, not try and blame it on somebody else. We must confess it to our Heavenly Father. But we must also put it to death. That battle that I mentioned at the start, we're, we're in it. We're in a war. And the devil will come at us constantly to try and trip us, to try and tell us, oh, you know, you're not really forgiven. God doesn't really love you. If that happens, you need to point him to the cross. We need to be specific with our confession. Don't just gloss over things. Don't minimise things. Be honest before God. Don't drag your feet. And above all, remember this, as we read in Ephesians 2, one of the great buts of Scripture. But God, who is rich in mercy, remember that, and hold, hold that fast. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul reminds us time and time again, don't forget 
what the Lord has done for you. Walk in step with the Spirit. Don't drift away. Keep short accounts. And remember what Micah says in chapter 7. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Don't we serve a wonderful saviour? Can we say amen to that this morning? As we come around this table of remembrance, we have no excuses. We have no reasons not to come to him. I pray that we each and every day will remember that we have been saved by grace. There is nothing that we can be proud of in our salvation. It is all of God. And he is there, willing and able to pick us up every time we fall, to forgive us if we have a sincere heart. And don't let the devil trick you into thinking that God cannot forgive. He forgives your sins and he chooses to forget them. He takes them away. He doesn't bring them back out again and beat them across our heads and say, do you remember what you did? He chooses to forget. And in the hymn we're going to sing in a moment, we hear these words, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. How can we sing that? Well, the author of the song tells us, because the sinless saviour died and God is satisfied. Hold on to that fact. Don't let the devil rob you of your peace. But equally, don't do yourself harm by sitting on your sin. Bring it to God and allow him to clean you up. Allow him to bless you with his forgiveness and his mercy. Amen.